give the $100,000 worth of XYZ to your church and then go right back into the market and buy that same stock with your $100,000 in cash. Now your basis is $100,000. You made $70,000 in cash in, 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 in uh, capital gain. Go away, and your church got the full $100,000, not the $100,000 net of the taxes you might have given. So it's things like that that are fairly simple, fairly straightforward, but a lot of people, I'm surprised by the number of really smart business people that don't know to give away appreciated asset. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Josh, you had a great interview with Jim Shepard, and uh, you guys jumped into the topic of designated giving. Can you tell me just a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So designated giving comes in two different contexts here. One is when you're doing a capital campaign, most of the time you're asking people to give to a specific project or a specific uh, ministry budget. Uh, But at other times, people may want to make a designated gift, either maybe in their will or they just want to make a gift and say, I want this used for mission trips or I want this used for the children's fund. Charities in general, but churches uh, specifically in this context, have to be very careful when we start talking about designated giving because what the law says about designated giving is that when a donor gives you a gift for a specific purpose and you accept that gift, you've just created a contract. And as such, you must use those funds for that particular purpose. And if you don't, the courts can require you to pay that back if um, the donor is upset by the fact that you didn't use those funds for that specific purpose. Uh, and you'll hear some in the interview about just some war stories uh, about where that has gone wrong. Um, but it, so it's very important, though, that churches do that. And, you know, we've got some tips that uh, that we can help you with in terms of having specific policies and specific documents in place for each designated account that you end up setting up. Uh, and the key there is just to make sure that you have a, a clause in that document that you have the donor sign when they make the gift that one of the purposes of that designated fund is to make gifts or contributions to the general budget, to the general fund, uh, because then that gives you an out in the event that you need to redesignate. If the purpose for which that was designated is no longer something that the church is doing, now you can redesignate those funds without having to go back and ask for permission to do that. And in the context of a capital campaign, if you had to go back to every donor uh, and ask for permission to redesignate that gift. Some of them may have passed away. Some of them may have moved moved away. And you just it's going to be very difficult to get in there and figure out exactly how you're going to get everybody's permission. So having that kind of escape clause uh, at the end of those documents uh, for those planned designated uh, accounts uh, is just a great way to make sure your church is protected from uh, from anything that might happen if you need to redesignate funds. Yeah, this is such a, an important topic and one that's not discussed very often. So I'm excited to jump into this interview. Absolutely. Today, our guest is Jim Shepard. He's the CEO and principal at Generis. It's a consulting firm passionate about helping churches inspire and cultivate generosity through giving development, coaching, and strategy. After college, Jim passed the CPA exam and pursued a career 
career as a financial executive. Uh, though he grew up in the church, Jim was not a believer until he was 28. That part of his life intersected with his business life in 1991 when he thought he might be called to the pastorate, this coming at a time when he was at a very high level in a major financial services company. After an intense spiritual period in his life, Jim realized that there that he was uh, not where God was calling him. Seven months into a corporate buyout and a series of providentially inspired events, Jim moved from the corporate world to giving development for churches and ministry organizations. Jim is a student of generosity and is passionate about spreading it through the church. For the last 23 years, he's devoted his life to coaching pastors and understands the financial challenges that churches face today, such as annual giving, debt, capital projects, and planned giving. He's a positive force in bridging these needs with the power of spiritually motivated stewardship. Cumulatively, Jim has partnered with his clients to raise over $1.3 billion for local church ministry. Jim is a frequent writer and speaker on generosity and ministry funding. He is co-author of Contagious Generosity, Creating a Culture of Giving in Your Church, and you can find a link to his book in the show notes, so go buy it. Jim and his wife, Nancy, live in the Atlanta, Georgia area where they have two daughters. He is actively involved in Perimeter Church where he serves as an elder and provides guidance to the generosity ministry team. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Josh, so much. It's a real honor to be here today. Well, Jim, last time we were together, we talked about planned giving and its usefulness in helping the church get some financial security. And one of the tools we touched on, I want to kind of go back to it a bit more deeply, and that is this idea of a capital campaign. First of all, can you kind of describe uh, when a church should start thinking about doing a capital campaign and why they might want to do that? Yeah, so capital campaigns fit into this this kind of this whole philosophy of giving. Of There's kind of three parts to it. We talked about planned giving, which is kind of the, the longer, longer-term piece. Then on the front side, we have what we call everyday. If you read on our website, generis.com, you'll see us talk about everyday generosity. And then there's what we call opportunity generosity. And that's really where the capital campaign comes in. So you've got a church and you've got a ministry budget and you're able to fund everything that you need to do on a ministry budget. But then something comes up. Historically, it's been a building project. But more recently, we do a lot of capital giving type initiatives for things that are not technically brick and mortar. It might be ministry venture capital. It's something, you know, an opportunity that you have in front of you that could move your ministry forward, but you don't have the funding in your ongoing everyday budget to be able to pull that off. That's when you begin to think about how do I create this surge of giving for a two-year or three-year period that would enable me to do that. And that's where the capital piece comes in for most churches. Awesome. Very good. Well, tell me just from a 30,000 foot view, and I know none of these campaigns are exactly alike, but what are the general steps involved in a capital campaign? What can people expect? Yeah, for me, I think, Josh, I think capital campaigns, any kind of a capital giving initiative, we have our more traditional capital campaign. We have our one fund approach. Both of them are giving accelerators in the capital giving environment. And there's two, I like to think of it as two pillars that the capital campaign rests on. And one pillar is what I call vision and awareness. In other words, the vision of the church and an awareness of what the church is doing on an ongoing basis. So, you know, a vision of ministry. We believe Perimeter Church is called to blank. I won't bore you with what our what our vision statement is, but you get what I'm saying there. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have an awareness of that. But over here is this other pillar that's very, very important, and it's discipleship. It's discipleship. It's having spiritual maturity in the area of giving and, and, and your faith. 
And so if you have, you know, all vision and awareness and no discipleship, what you have is basically fundraising. People don't really, you know, get that there's a spiritual implication for, for their giving inside of the church. If you have all discipleship and no vision slash awareness, what you get is kind of a mushy sort of giving of like, hey, I know I'm giving, but what's it going toward? And what you can do is you can breed a strong culture of obedience over here, but it misses the, the whole point of being joyful about what the church is really accomplishing. And so you need both. You know, it's kind of like saying head and heart. I need head and heart to be engaged. And so we have a real, real strong uh, emphasis on making sure that churches do both. Uh, that, that, you know, from the 30,000 foot view, we just say, until you have both of those, really, there's no reason to move forward. This obviously there's a big piece too, in getting into front of your congregation, making sure that, uh, you know, both your financial leaders get it first. We like to make sure that financial leaders see it first. If those people are not going to embrace and support it, it's unrealistic to, to believe that everybody else will. And then you go to the congregation. So you don't go to everybody at once. It's kind of a stage rollout. You go to your maybe your higher capacity people first, then your financial leaders and, and other types of leaders, and then to the rest of the congregation. So you have a strategy on how you're going to do that. And then, of course, the big piece is the pastor is, for my, my, my way of saying it, for lack of a better word, is the megaphone. There are other voices, but the biggest voice in all of this is going to be the pastor's voice. That pastor is a spiritual leader of that flock. God speaks in and through them. Obviously, elders and other people weigh in on that. But God speaks at the church. And so the pastor's voice has to be leveraged in a way that makes sense in all of that, to communicate vision and awareness, to communicate the priority of discipleship and get people engaged around that. So if I had to give you kind of a 30,000-foot view, I think that's probably what it would look like. There's a lot underneath that, but that's probably a pretty good way to start. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I know our church does capital campaigns and I've been a part of several churches and, and been involved in some capital campaigns with, with clients. And, you, you know, ultimately, one of the things that, that I like to see is, or, or let me rephrase this, one of the things that I don't like to see is when uh, a church comes to me and, and says, hey, we want to do a capital campaign, but they don't have a budget already. And the whole right. idea is, well, we don't have a budget because we want to be able to, you know, to move quickly when the Holy Spirit leads, we're just going to go and, and do that. And this opportunity, uh, capital campaign, kind of as you mentioned, is this uh, the opportunity when the Holy Spirit moves, that's the means of funding it. It's not we're going to avoid a budget so that we can be a little bit more flexible. Uh, it's, hey, when the Holy Spirit moves and has a big idea and a big vision for the church, let's use one of these capital campaigns uh, as a means of funding that rather than going through the certainly much more risky uh, endeavor of not having a budget for the church. So. Okay. That's right. That's right. And it's, we hear that sometimes, um, Josh. And so, you know, we're big, big, big on, you know, we believe that God moves. We believe that God moves providentially. Yeah. But we also believe that God moves providentially and mainly uses his people as a means of moving ahead. And so when people begin to talk about these other models, I would say like, well, can you tell me three places where you've seen that happen? And usually it's a hypothetical thing. And I was like, okay, got it. So that could happen miraculously. But in the meantime, we're going to plan on it to happen another way. That is by your people participating in this giving initiative that we're launching out here. So our planning and strategy and methodology does is not mutually exclusive of faith. In fact, we think it just kind of goes right there together. And kind of the way that, that I like to think of it is, you know, I planted Apollos watered and God granted the increase. 
And yeah. so what Paul's saying is that he had a part, Apollos had a part, but God had the bigger part. He acknowledges that without God's increase, the work that he and Apollos done, had done would have been in vain. I think that's the way I think of our work here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how would you advise, this is kind of off script a little bit, but how would you talk to a church about uh, using uh, tax benefits and things like that in the course of, uh, of a capital campaign? How would, how would you tell pastors to inform their congregation about some of those perks, not necessarily as motivators, but as uh, just perks to going ahead and participating in this capital campaign? Yeah, so I think for me, um, and, and really for our firm generally, Josh, I think the way that we look at it is this. I don't want you, as a disciple of, of the Lord Jesus, I don't want you to make your giving primarily about tax benefits, but I don't want you to be ignorant of that. Because there are ways that you can maximize and optimize your giving, leveraging tax benefits if you have that available to you. The, the most more recent tax reform has really scaled that down to a much smaller group of people than it ever has been. Um, I think the final numbers are still out, but the um, the tax research that we saw when the legislation was passed said generally about 26 to 27 percent of Americans were itemizing, and under the new legislation, that would move to about nine percent. So, yeah. what I'd say to, to to churches, you know, if you're look, if your church is a cross section of that, then only one out of every four people in your in your in your congregation was itemizing before that and leveraging the tax benefits. So the tax legislation has less of an effect on churches than most people think. Of the nine percent, it doesn't have that there's no effect on them. They were itemizing before and itemizing now. And and there are ways to get around that. If it you know, and the new twenty four thousand dollar aggregate, you know, personal exemption if you have, um, for me, I think it's probably the people in the six to $8,000 range giving that got hit the hardest because they probably were itemizing under the old law. They probably can't itemize under the new law because they can't get to $24,000. But what you and I know is if that person, let's just say they're giving $7,500 a year, I could put $15,000 into a donor advised fund this year. I can give $7,500 to Perimeter Church this year. 7500 next year so that it doesn't get all dispersed at once. I get to itemize this year because I had $15,000 that I put into the donor advice. I get to take the full 24 next year, even though I don't have $24,000 in, in thing. So if you think through it, you actually come out ahead in this bundling concept if you'll do it properly and keep doing it every other year. I may be a little bit confusing to people, but I think you understand what I'm saying there is that you can really make that work for you. So some people got discouraged because they were thinking, well, gosh, I can't itemize anymore. And, you know, that's going to affect my giving. No, 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 no. If you think through it and think of the bundling concept and use a donor advised fund for that every other year donation, you can actually come out better. I'm waiting for the IRS to close that because I think it's actually a little bit of a gap that they created for somebody to get extra tax benefits that they wouldn't have gotten anyway. But that, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, is uh, thinking about, you know, um, you know, qualified distributions, the, whole, the, on, the ongoing, the IRA, you know, the charitable IRA, which now got memorialized for the next, what, I guess, 10 years, we would say permanently, but it was on a year-to-year basis. Um, I find a lot of people, and it has a, a restricted applicability. You have to be 70 and a half or above. You can give up to $100,000 a year and pull that out of your IRA, do a direct transfer, and you get to count that towards your qualified, uh, or excuse me, your minimum uh, required distributions every year. And, um, you know, so it's a small niche, but for, 
you know, I had a gentleman in, in Texas. He had hit it big in the energy markets, and he'd been funding this IRA that he had all these years. He said, man, he said, are you telling me I can take that IRA and I can give $100,000 a year and it quali- qualifies for my qualified minimum distributions and everything else and all that, and I give it straight to the church? I said, yes, sir. He said, sign me up for that. Yeah. He said, I'm sick and tired of them telling me, I've got to take this money out. I don't even need that money. And so I know it's a small niche, but it's things like that. If you'll educate yourself on giving assets instead of giving cash, if you had $100,000 in you know, stocks that you had bought for $30,000, you got $70,000 in an unrealized gain. And let's just say you also had $100,000 in cash. It would be very unwise to give the $100,000 cash. You could say, well, wait, Jim, I really like that stock. It's you know XYZ Corporation. Josh, tell you what, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Give the $100,000 worth of XYZ to your church and then go right back into the market and buy that same stock with your $100,000 in cash. Now your basis is $100,000. You made $70,000 in cash and in, 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 in capital gain go away and your church got the full $100,000, not the $100,000 net of the taxes that you might have given. So it's things like that that are fairly simple, fairly straightforward, but a lot of people, I'm surprised by the number of really smart business people that don't know to give away appreciated assets. So it's things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody, especially anybody who owns any kind of income generating property where not only does it appreciate in value, you actually have to depreciate that year over year. Um, I I had a client, this was a decade ago or better, but uh, he had owned a piece of commercial property for 30 years when it depreciated appreciated all the way down to zero. Uh, and then he got into a situation where he had to sell it. He, oh, ran, into a, he ran into a big tax bill for sure. A uh, big tax bill on that. It'd been yeah. easy for him to give it away, right? That's right. It would have been. It absolutely would have been. So, yeah. And what you can do in a situation like that is, you know, the church doesn't want to be in the, in the, in the, in the asset management business. So mm-hmm. what I tell, 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 tell clients is, Josh, you go and you find a buyer for the, uh, for, the, for the commercial property, and then you quit claim deed the property over to the church in a donation. The church then stands in the position of the, of the seller, and they get the full amount, and you get the deduction, and you've got a very clear deduction because it's fair market value on the date of the transfer, which is going to be right around the day that you quit claim deeded it. Right. So it's a beautiful transaction for everybody involved. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really like the idea of a donor advised fund as well. You know, I think those are certainly going to come more into uh, into fruition with this new uh, tax law. I think it's one of those things that people are going to going to look at more and more. Um, and, you know, last time we talked talked a little bit about a private foundation and certainly, you know, some people that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do a private foundation, but the next best thing would be a donor advised fund where you can do a lot of the same type of stuff. So yeah, that's all great. Very simplified. And, you know, I don't know when they're going to get around to closing this. I'm sure the IRS at some point in time is going to get around to this, but I mean, hypothetically, Josh, you can put money into a donor advised fund and you can leave it in there for a long, long time. There are no minimum requirements. There's no formula for taking that out. Um, I don't know how long that's going to stay in place, but if you read the, the the numbers every year, the dollars that are sitting in donor advised funds is growing by tens of billions of dollars every wow. year. And at some point, it's going to get the IRS's attention that there's a, you know, there's something there to gain if they could uh, close that up. But for now, it's a super easy, no paperwork, no formulas, very simple to set up, and you can do with it whatever you want to do. Yeah, that's all good stuff. Good stuff. So, you know, these capital campaigns that we're talking about, uh, you know, they really go to a a specific purpose and a specific opportunity. And so a lot of times when those are being uh, sold by a church, that's a bad word, but a lot of times when those are being promoted by a church uh, in this capital campaign, 
it, it comes across as this is what the money is going for. And certainly that throws off some legal bells for me uh, as an attorney in that if money is given to, for a designated purpose and it's accepted by the church, then it has to be used for that purpose. And if it's not, uh, there are some special loopholes that you're going to have to jump through to use it for a different purpose. And you can even uh, find yourself sued and having to return that money. I'm familiar of, of one case uh, down on the Gulf Coast where it was it was post-Katrina and they had had raised all sorts of money to build, rebuild a church that was destroyed by the hurricane, uh, ended up deciding, oh, we're not going to do that, while the donors ended up suing the church, and they won uh, because the church would not uh, was not using that money for the purposes of rebuilding the, the, the building that was there. Uh, and the church ended up having to pay all of that money back, despite the mm. fact that they had already they spent a good chunk of it. And so um, what are some things that, that as you're setting up these capital campaigns, or is there anything that you specifically advise churches to do uh, in order to ensure that the money they receive is used for the purposes in which uh, they held that capital campaign? Yeah, so we don't, we, you know, the, the legal side of that is not really our thing, and we're not accountants yeah. and advisors in that. But we spend a lot of time talking to our clients and saying, if you're going to run our traditional capital campaign concept, uh, an approach, I'll speak to the other one in just a second, because it does come into this issue. Then if you say that you're raising $6 million to build a children and youth building, you need to spend that money on that children and youth building. And the only way you get around that is reproposing that back to the congregation and using whatever bylaws, constitutional polity you have in your church to approve the new project as a substitute for the other one, and with the caveat that anybody who doesn't want that can somehow or another get their money back that they had contributed to the other thing. So if you know Jim and Nancy had put in you know, $50,000 of their $100,000 pledge and you decided to do a different building, there has to be a, a way to repatriate that money back to Jim and Nancy in some way, shape, or form because you have changed the project per se. Even if the congregation approves it, you have to allow the individual donors to say, no, nah, that's not the one I wanted. I was in for the, for the kids' building. So there are some things to, to, to be careful to navigate. You know, the other thing, it's not just short-term, Josh. What we tell them is that will not only have short-term implications. If you do that, you're breaching trust with your people. And the next time you try to do a capital initiative, you will see it. And you'll see it big time because they will not believe. They'll say, well, you know, that last time we raised all that money and they didn't put it where they said they were going to put it. And, and it'll hurt you. There are legal issues and there are cultural issues that you'll have to face there. Now, in our one fund approach, a little bit different, and I won't, I'll try to keep this as simple as I can. One fund is where we take all of the ministry needs of the church over the next two years and all of the capital needs of the church over the next two years and put them into one bucket, which becomes undesignated giving. So even if I had $6 million for a children and youth building and I decide that a gymnasium and a family life center is a better idea, I can reroute that money. Now, I've got to, still got to navigate the cultural challenge, but legally I can do that without any restrictions because it was all undesignated to start with. So if it takes, let's just say, you know, I need $3.8 million to run the church this year, and I need $4.2 million to run the church next year, and I need $6 million to build this building, that would be a $14 million one-fund campaign the $8 million to run the church, the $6 million for the capital piece, but it's all in one bucket called a one fund, and it's all undesignated. 
the financial people in the church tend to like that a lot because they're like, oh, man, now I don't have to worry about keeping all this designated money in this bucket. You still can't breach trust with your people because if you said you're building a kid's building and you decide to do something different, you're going to have to navigate that and make sure everybody's on board because if you don't, the next time you try to do one of these, you're like, well, I'm not giving to that because the last time we had one of these one funds, they went and used that money for something completely different. So there's still the caveat there of keeping trust with your people, but the legal piece goes away and it yeah. makes it a little bit easier there. So, And we do about half and half. We do half traditional campaigns, half one funds. And, uh, you know, we just have to tell our clients, you know, be careful about this. And if you're, if you're unsure, then talk with your financial advisors, talk with your legal advisors and make sure you know what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that approach. You know, one of the things I tell churches, uh, and I've kind of got some sample product forms. Matter of fact, I'll put them in the show notes. It's just one of these things where uh, when you set up a designated fund, either through a capital campaign or if somebody just wants to give specifically to the children's fund or the youth fund or the scholarship fund or whatever, all that's well and good as long as the policies specifically indicate that here's the purposes for this particular fund and the last purpose on there is a donation to the general fund. Uh, so that in the event that you need to make that that transfer, you can do so, and the donor knows that, and and so forth and so on. It's just a matter of building the trust uh, between the pastor uh, and the people in that congregation uh, that hey, this is what we really want to use this money for, but we we need to legally and just as a matter of of, of prudence uh, need, need to reserve our ability to pull some of that money back in. You know, heaven forbid, uh, you, we have this you know nine million dollar capital campaign to build a building and every air conditioner uh, is fried by a lightning strike and we've got to spend, you know, $30,000 to replace every air conditioner. Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. That's right. That's right. So, and that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, which typically wouldn't be a bad, a big deal if you had insurance, but you know, sometimes, Hey, well, we, we let the insurance go and that now, now we've got a big problem. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Very good. Exactly. All right. You and I have way too many war stories. We could tell them those kinds of things, don't we? We we we, we could tell <laughs> war stories for a long time. We, we could probably we, do a podcast called War Stories. We should do that sometime. <laughs> war stories. Things things that have happened that you don't want to know about and we can't tell you who it was. That's right. <laughs> that's, we that's want to right. protect the innocent and the guilty. <laughs> that's right. Wow. That's that's a great idea. We may have to do that. That's a that's war a great story. And get and get Tom Rayner in here because he's got a few as well. <laughs> yes, he does. You can read some of his blogs and see some of the, the you know, my, one of my favorite blogs of his is uh, the one he wrote on things you actually had to have a business meeting for. Uh, and right. topics right. Were, were were very, very entertaining. So. Oh, man. Oh, man. There were some crazy ones in that one. I do remember that one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, we want to feature uh, a resource today and today's featured resources uh, for church leaders is Generis. Uh, Generis is a consulting firm that takes biblical principles, best giving practices, and your ministry's DNA and collaborates with you to weave them all into a strategy that will help fund your God-inspired vision. They are a team of experienced guides passionate about partnering with their ministries on giving projects with God-sized vision and kingdom implications. Their generosity strategists are committed to capturing the amazing God-inspired vision that you have for your ministry and helping you fund it. They help you rethink reality to make new things possible and set clear expectations. They'll connect vision uniquely to the proven strategies they've used to help fund more than $6 billion in faith-based ministries across the world by approaching everything with a make-it-last mindset. 
This ensures that everything they accomplish with you outlives the length of any one campaign, project, or initiative. Learn more at Generis.com. There's a link in the show notes as well as uh, the links to uh, Jim's book uh, and uh, ways that you can reach out to them and contact them for your church. Jim, thank you so much for being on with us today. Any last thoughts? Josh, thanks so much. I think I would just say, you know, I think the, the whole thing that we've talked about in both the first podcast and this one is that planning and faith are not mutually exclusive, that you can be engaged in diligent planning and making sure things are, are in good order. And you're not, you're not saying that faith is not a part of that equation. You're just, it's kind of, I like the old missionary prayer, uh, the missionary saying, where is it? Uh, was it, we were going to work as if it all depends on us and pray as if it all depends on God. We're going to plan as if, all of this is going to happen, but we're going to pray as if God comes in and does something even bigger than that. And so that's what I really would say to everyone. I hear it a lot. Hey, Jim, you know, I, I'm all for all that planning, but man, you've got to have some faith too. They're not mutually exclusive. Be diligent. Do your part. Be a good steward of everything God's put under your care and then ask him to bless it and do something even bigger than that with it. Yeah, man, it's great stuff. Good, good word. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, Jim. Thank you so much for being on. Everybody take care. We'll see you next time. Wow, Josh, there is just so much to unpack in that. But uh, any any final thoughts on this? You know, from a legal standpoint, I think we've pretty well covered things. But uh, this is one of those things, you, you know, every three years, my home church does a capital campaign. And we're in the midst of kind of the middle of this master plan. But one of the things we talk about a lot when we talk about even bylaws and business meetings and kind of those mundane things about operating a church is that you've got to have a vision for your church. You've got to know where your church is going. Uh, and God gives that vision, and and it's up to you as a pastor, as a church leader, to grab that vision, see where that where that is, and then kind of take the steps to get there. Well, one of those steps is making sure that you can fund the ministry that God has called you to five, ten years, fifteen years down the road. And a great way to do that is through a capital campaign, uh, because it is not just a week by week by week effort to raise money uh, by people giving in the offering plate, this is a means by which you can say, listen, above your normal tithes, how much can you give to make sure that we fulfill our vision, that we in, we, we achieve that vision? Uh, and if you can keep that vision in front of your people and you can motivate them to, to give to that mission, uh, then you can see some of the volatility in giving um, go away because you've got that long-term um, plan that uh, that you're putting in front of your people and the long-term commitment that you're asking them to make. So capital com- campaigns can be a great thing, but again, we've just got to be careful how we uh, promote and talk about those capital campaigns because if it's for a designated purpose, you must use those funds for that purpose. Absolutely. Josh, tell us what you've got going on over at Church General Council. Well, let me tell you a little bit about our hotline suite. You know, a lot of pastors really don't need an attorney on retainer for their church. They really just need somebody that they can call for a quick answer to a question. Uh, and so one of the services that we offer is a hotline. And so for just $8.49 a month, you'll have access by email or phone to our church lawyer hotline, and you can get quick answers to your questions. You're also going to get access uh, to all of the webinars that we do. Normally, the cost to attend that webinar is $14.99. So if you attend seven of the 40 or so webinars that we're going to do in a year, this is really going to pay for itself. Uh, our webinars are fully interactive, so you really don't want to miss out on those things. 
And then for $24.99 a month, uh, you can get all of those things plus some free document review and access to our sample policy manual online. And then if you go one step further for $39.99 a month, you'll get all that plus some custom document drafting and expanded access hours to a church attorney. So each level that you move up also moves you up on our priority lists in terms of getting you taken care of. So you want to go check that out at churchgeneralcouncil.com. That's our hotline suite. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week. Thank you.